manipulate the price of gold and silver. But all that money printing that they've done has flowed into the only non-manipulated currency in the world, and that is Bitcoin. I think this is totally different. No, no different. Only different in your mind. You must unlearn what you have learned. All right, I'll give it a try. No, try not. Do or do not. There is no try. Once in a while, you can Bitcoin changes absolutely everything. What's in there? Only what you take with you. Morning, Jeremy. Thanks for making the time and welcome to the show. Hey, Barry. Great to be here. Jeremy, how about you? We'll jump straight into it. And how about you give the audience like a brief background about yourself? Okay. Um, I sometimes at the moment struggle to kind of define myself because I do and have done a lot of different things. But I guess um, like at uni, I studied mechanical engineering and commerce. And um, at the time, there wasn't a whole lot of strategy behind that. But I just liked physics and uh, and maths. And so that led me to mechanical engineering. I like cars. Hmm. Um, so that seemed at the time the obvious choice because this is sort of mid or early 2000s. And back then, Australia still made cars. Um, and from there, I, I got a job at Ford uh, in, the, in their factory in Melbourne. And I, I loved it, but I could see that it wasn't going to be around for a long time. And I didn't want to have this skill set and network in that industry, uh, knowing that it was going to die. Uh, so there, from then, I went to work for a supply chain packaging firm. And I, I was there for nearly a decade. Um, and I, I, I enjoyed it in the lower levels when I was doing real things. Mm. But as I got a bit bored. And then when I became more senior and I started to see how it actually worked, um, I found it a lot less satisfying and um, eventually I, I, I just had to quit because, and I think this is something I've noticed when I've spoken to other Bitcoiners, um, once you start doing work where you get paid money and you have to say the right thing, um, it just, it takes, it like sucks your soul, <laughs> if I don't know right. if you understand that. Um, yeah. And so I, I quit that job. And kind of from that point forward, I've been looking for like some other way to, I guess, create income um, where I'm more in control. So at the time, I um, this is back in probably kind of 20, uh, 2014-ish, before crypto was too, that big, um, younger people were sort of trading Forex. That was like right. what people were doing rather than for crypto. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, cool, I'm going to learn how to do Forex and I'll make my income. It doesn't work that way. But um, what happened was because I was reading about Forex on my Kindle, I would get suggestions from Amazon about um, like foreign currency books. And that's when I realized and learned about fiat currencies and gold and like the gold standard, all that sort of stuff. So I had this kind of quite strong background in gold and silver. I've then done kind of a few different um, smaller jobs, mostly because um, when my daughter was about 10 months, I decided to um, spend a lot more time parenting. So since about 2017, I've just been doing part-time jobs that fit in with my uh, my family uh, life. So I was doing uh, working at a biotech startup, just doing admin. Um, I did actually work for a wine company for a couple of years, which was quite quite good. Um, I got to do winery tours like while I was getting paid, so that was that was good. Um, and uh, I know I spent some time at Hardlock, which was awesome working in, in the Bitcoin space. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, that um, that background in in money and gold was very helpful when I you know decided to get into Bitcoin. So. I'll hand back to you because that was a fairly long intro. 
No, no, that's that's fine. Uh, yeah, going back to like, so when did you actually discover Bitcoin and like, how did you like discover Bitcoin? Like, how did you find Bitcoin? So I probably first saw it in, um, I used to live in Melbourne and in Emporium, um, if you go up to the uh, food court, which I used to do a fair bit, there's a, there was a Bitcoin ATM next to the escalator. And I, this is like 20, probably 14, 20, 30, pretty early. Mm. And I just, you know, I saw it and thought that's interesting, but then didn't do anything about it. Um, then kind of forgot about it. Um, and in 2020, after COVID, um, I kind of looked at what was happening. Like, oh, geez, what's going on with my super here? So I started spending mm. a lot more time digging into, uh, at the time, gold, silver and, and money. And then I was watching um, uh, some Real Vision videos. And at the time, Raul Powell, he was really strongly into gold at the time. Um, he was going into Bitcoin. In fact, he was going to sell his gold to buy Bitcoin. I was like, well, this is interesting. So this is probably like, I think, May 2020 when I bought my first Bitcoin. Just a small amount because at the time I didn't have, I didn't understand. I, I kind of saw it as like a uh, an option. Like, you know, it could go to zero. It could go up a lot. And I didn't want to put too much in. And then I watched um, two things happened. And I, I remember quite vividly, I read the Bitcoin standard. And I'm kind of silly like I should have read it a few months earlier. I could have seen it, but it was $30 to buy it on my Kindle. I'm like, oh, I'll, I'll find another book. Yeah. And then I had it strongly recommended. Like, okay, I'll pay the 30 bucks and I'll read this book. Mm. And that just really crystallized for me um, that we were going to go to a new monetary standard, not back to an old one based on gold and silver. And like, I can remember the moment I was in a cafe when I read um, about how actually it's um, technology is what enabled the gold standard from the gold and silver standard. So it was like the railway and the telegraph system communication. That's what enabled the movement to a, a purely gold-based system. And I'm like, oh, technology is what's going to, you know, drive the next monetary system. Uh, up until that point, I actually thought we were going to go back to a gold standard. And um, yeah, I vividly remember that. And since then, I've been just, you know, really into Bitcoin, tons of podcast reading, you know, running nodes and stuff. So that's talking kind of like September-ish of 2020. Yep. Uh, and another thing that was very influential was um, the interview Raul Powell did with Michael Saylor. Um, it was probably one of the first Michael Saylor interviews, if not the first, after his company announced um, MicroStrategy that they were going to um, buy Bitcoin. I mean, he's done a million interviews now, but back then it was like he yep. was just getting into Bitcoin. Uh, unfortunately, since then, uh, Real Vision has gone off the rails. But um, at the time, it was quite had some really good content. Yes. Um, and in fact, um, and then I, you know, I did the whole crypto thing for a while, and I thought, oh, we'll look at the next YouTube and the next this and that. Okay. Um, but there was a video on there on on Real Vision. I'll give them credit for this. Um, and the the title was something like "The Case for Bitcoin Maximalism." Okay. I'm like, oh, these guys seem like wackos, but I'll, I'll, I'll give it a try. <laughs> um, and I was really surprised by the case the guy made and i that's when i started becoming um much more focused on just bitcoin um and then i started going to the adelaide bitcoin meetup mm. um, which was initially to be honest like a little bit confronting like the first um i met daniel there and the first that he runs it and the first thing he, um he says oh yeah we're talking about shit coins and I'm like, whoa this is <laughs> these guys are pretty lucky out there uh and i met rusty who is like a lightning developer and they're saying like, oh yeah are shit coins I'm like whoa really like it's just like this different world um but the thing one thing that i think was very helpful that i did was i decided to run my own bitcoin node mm. which now i don't think anything of but at the time like it took me a while to figure out how to do it uh, and then I'd, I had done it. It wasn't a big deal. And then I was hearing about staking on Ethereum and then how people were going to do that. 
and I looked into um, like what most people were doing, and most people were just running their Ethereum nodes on Amazon Web Services. Yeah, I'm like, hold on, that's not decentralized. And you look at the reason why, like, it has to have 100%, like 100% internet uptime. Mm. Um, like, if you lose connectivity, you get you get slashed. I'm like, wait a sec, this is not this is not a decentralized future. So that's kind of been my path into, I guess, Bitcoin. So gold and silver to Bitcoin and into to Bitcoin maximalism. Um, I'm still a strong proponent of gold and silver. I think that they have a place uh, for people, but you know, I'm, Bitcoin is the future, definitely. We're not going back to a monetary system where you send gold coins around the world. Definitely not. Yep, yep, hundred percent. And so, so this was all around like 2020, 2021. Yeah. That yeah, yeah, you yeah, interesting. Yeah, and what's the backstory for the Australian Bitcoin industry body? Like how did that come about to be? And you're currently the president there, right? Like uh, what's the, de- uh, I'm the CEO, the it's CEO. The okay. role, so it sounds yep. good, but yeah, I don't get a salary. So yep. what happened was, um, so you might be aware there's a, an organization called blockchain Australia. And right, normally yes. what happens in the industry, um, you have an industry body that <clears throat> represents the views of the industry. So there can be one, kind of communication channel with the government or the media, for example. Um, so I actually used to work at an industry body. Um, it was an interesting, like a sustainability industry body. And my views have changed a lot about sustainability since then. But it was kind of useful because um, I got to know how industry body works. So in that case, um, like it's membership funded. So the members would pay a fee. There was a, it was an infrastructure industry body. The members would pay a fee and that would, um, and allow the industry body to pay salaries and they would do things like um, training, um, media, um, advising on regulations and um, things like that. Uh, so the what happened was um, there is a blockchain, uh, it's called Blockchain Australia, I think, industry yes. body representing the blockchain industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you go to CoinSpot, for example, and you scroll down the bottom, it says certified by Blockchain Australia and they're a member. And I think they pay like $4,000 or something to be a member. And so Blockchain Australia was having conversations with the, the government, with Austrac, who regulate the exchanges in Australia and representing their view of the industry. But no one in the Bitcoin only industry wants to have anything to do with Blockchain Australia because they're just, you know, dishonest. Yeah. So we, um, and then Ethan, who is from Bissaru, he um, found out that Austrac has meetings regularly with Blockchain Australia. And he wanted to have it a, have a say on behalf of Bitcoin only exchanges and they basically said look we don't want to deal with companies because if we did that we'd have to deal with every single company which is fair enough so he said fine well i'll I'll form my own body so he started the australian industry uh, bitcoin industry body um, for that purpose so that he could have uh, and the industry can have a voice uh, in things like austrack meetings and um, you know creating submissions around um, proposals for different regulation so initially it was founded by Ethan and two other board members, um, Daniel from Hardblock and also another Daniel from Wallet of, uh, sorry, Living Room of Satoshi. Okay. And Ethan was the CEO, but um, he, he's got a lot on his plate at the moment. So, um, and I was doing some work with them. So I was writing submissions, um, like there's some regulations that have been proposed around um, how to manage um, or I suppose better manage um, crypto, the regulation of the crypto industry. And so I was writing some regulations in response to that because some of the things in there, you know, like they do understand a lot about how Bitcoin works, but I think they're still getting their head around how a legal framework interacts with Bitcoin, especially, for example, how, you know, like if 
if you lose your, your seed phrase, it's gone. Right, <laughs> but the whole custody yes. thing is, is a different way of thinking compared to like a legal framework where you can just freeze assets. So, yeah, I started off um, uh, writing submissions for them. And Ethan, you know, said that there was an opportunity to be CEO. And initially I was a bit apprehensive because, um, you know, like I've got a young family, I don't have heaps of time. Um, but I, as I thought about it in my career, like I've done a lot of different things, but in most of the time I'm I'm translating between um, something quite complex and technical and trying to simplify it to explain it to someone who might be quite senior who's not technical. Mm. And this, uh, and also, you know, building a team and, and trying to communicate within people. And, I'm, and I thought, well, this is kind of the best way I can actually contribute to Bitcoin within Australia because I have the skill set to, to build networks, to talk to people in government jobs. Um, but I also have the skill set to talk to Bitcoiners who talk in a completely different language. <laughs> and I can, you know, listen to one party, <clears throat> interpret what they're trying to say, and then translate it into words that, you know, someone in the government will understand. Um, yeah, so I, I put my hand up. It's a one-year term at the, at the moment. Um, and, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to be able to, you know, make a contribution because I'm, I'm not a coder. Like, I'd love to be a coder and just build a wallet or work on a wallet or something, but I'm, I'm not a coder. So I feel like this is a way that I can help um, make a contribution to the industry. Right, right. And so, and like at the moment, like, is there any work going on with the uh, with the Australian industry body? And like, where do you see, like, what sort of developments are happening there? Yeah, so because it is very new, so I only got the role in September and I had some leave. Um, yep. And I think when you first start a role, you have to start um, building your network. Um, mm. You can't do effective things without um, a network of, of strong relationships. So my initial focus is just um, introducing myself to the people I haven't met um, and trying to build my network. Um, uh, what I'd like to do is get a more representative um, membership base. So there are part, you know, people, there are industries or organisations who work in Bitcoin only in Australia who are not familiar with us. So I'd like to get them involved. Um, I would really like to start getting um, positive Bitcoin articles in the mainstream media. So, like, a lot of the focus has been, you know, writing content that basically goes straight back to the Bitcoin-only community, which is, you know, preaching to the converted. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, I'd, I, one of my main goals is to try and get some contacts uh, in the mainstream media or in PR so we can start placing, you know, because I have a, a bit of a writing background. Um, so, to start trying to place some articles in, like, the ABC website and, you know, major newspapers where people read them because what you tend to see is like um, when something happens to ethereum like the merge there'll be an article in the paper about how oh bitcoin is bad because it uses too much power and right. uh, ethereum is good because it doesn't use power anymore and what i want to be able to do is go to the uh, media and make some nice positive articles for for bitcoin because one of the problems about being decentralized is that bitcoin doesn't have a pr department or a legal department like if someone writes something negative about um I don't know, some other product like Coke, Coke is going to sue them or, you know, claim defamation. But if you say something false about Bitcoin, who's going to do that? Who's going to write back and say, there's no yeah. CEO. So we kind of want to fill that gap and say, well, let's start putting some positive articles. So the sort of things I'm thinking about is mm. the difference that um, Lightning has made for people in El Salvador. You know, if you look at the president talks about people who used to get 70 US dollars remittance from their children in the US, because of the saving in fees, now they're getting a hundred dollars. Yes. Yeah, that's a massive, that's life changing for people, you know, like a 50% increase when you're already on a very low salary is huge. And I'd like to just create a, you know, and I've got a contact in uh, El Salvador, he's an Australian guy. 
you know, right. create a story about, you know, here's some people and this is how Bitcoin has changed their lives. Mm. I'll put some articles around how, because um, I've got, I've talked to people, they're like, oh, yeah, but Bitcoin's stealing all the power from Europe. I'm like, well, no, because miners are not profitable when the price goes up about, above six cents a kilowatt hour. In Europe, the price is way higher than that. Even I pay like 40 cents a kilowatt hour. So, again, yeah. I'd like to just start to get some truth out there about, you know, how much power mm. does Bitcoin really use? And it's going to be a slow process. Like we might get a couple of articles, but I want it to grow. Um, and uh, yeah, but you got, you got to start somewhere. So that's kind of the high level goal. Um, and also just trying to be a connector. Um, so I've just signed up as a sponsor guy who's a, a tax lawyer. Right. Really interesting ideas. And I'm like, oh, I actually know this other guy who has a, a finance background and he's really into Bitcoin. So I'm going to connect him. I'm meeting tomorrow with them actually. You know, just little things like that. If I can connect people um, and then they can go off and do their thing, that's sort of, yeah, what, what I think we need because it is so decentralized. Um, it just, we just need a little bit of kind of like, um, yeah, connection just to get people kind of going in the right direction. Yeah, I, I think yeah, I need to connect the people and like set them in the right direction in some sort of way, right? Like, because then otherwise everyone is like individually doing what they think is right and like without any, and probably not getting anywhere as such. Well, it's not so much they're not getting it. You see this in open source software. Mm. People will look at the situation and have the same idea. They're like, oh, we need a decentralized messaging service. Right. And so then five different companies go and make a decentralized messaging service. Mm. But if those people work together, they could make a much like they could specialize and um, make one really good messaging service. Right. So if, you know, if a lot of people are working together doing the same thing, they're kind of wasting their effort because only one of those people needs to do that role. Mm. So it's more about just coordinating and saying, um, okay, you're over here doing this thing. How about you do that? And then I'll do this other thing and help you out. And then together we can be much stronger. That's kind of the thinking. More, more of like, I think, I think it's called synergy, right? Like it's one yeah. plus one makes it uh, three instead of two. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the other thing is what I've noticed people who come into the, um, I noticed this at my previous role, but through Abit as well, they're sort of coming in, they're discovering Bitcoin but they have no idea about the Bitcoin community. Mm. So just like a little thing, like introducing them to the, like they may not even know there's a Telegram group or that there's a Bitcoin meetup. Yeah. So just introducing them to the the um, Telegram group in their state and just saying, hey, here's the meetup. Just, you know, speeding up that process rather than waiting six months and go, oh, there's a Telegram group. Mm. Um, yeah, just kind of like helping them integrate into the community. So I'm, I'm expecting that, I mean, the news is so crazy now. Yes, the number of people who discover Bitcoin is going to explode, I believe, in the next kind of couple of years, and just helping them come into the community and just connecting them to the people who are going to help them. So it might be the people in their state, or it might be the people with their kind of um, specialization. That's, I feel like, a role that we can play. Sure, hundred percent. Yeah, I, I, just for myself, like uh, Bitcoin. I mean, you could say like Bitcoin clicked for me around the same time as you, around twenty twenty. But I yep. was yeah. But prior to that, like maybe five years. Uh, so yeah, 2015, 16, 17 onwards, like not so much, but I was like sort of investing in Bitcoin and Ethereum, but like yep. with no idea, just as an investment, like just yep. as like, yeah. And then when Bitcoin really clicked, I, I didn't know about the Telegram groups or nothing. Like I I was chatting with Daniel Prince and yep. then he introduced me to Wiz. 
Okay. And then Viz put me on to Parman and then Parman put me on to the Telegram group. So Thanks. like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then like, then there's so many other people that like, and that's how I like pro- came across yourself and like so many other Bitcoiners yeah, based here in Australia. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, and then once you get into the community, it's like, mm. whoa, it's a totally different culture. Like you've been able to live the culture. Yes. Like most people don't use their name. Um, <laughs> yeah. It, like that again is another um, learning curve. Yes, yes. It's, in speaking of news, you mentioned news. Uh, you're not so active on Twitter, which is like a good thing because Twitter can get really distracting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But where do you get like all your Bitcoin information and how do you consume news or macro news or whatever? Yeah, I went through um, a phase of like really culling out distractions. Like I went through like a productivity phase. Um, started with, do you know Tim Ferriss? Yes. Uh, yeah. So I read Four Hour Work Week probably mm. know, 15 years ago. And so I basically tried to cut out most news because important news will come to you at some point. Like if Russia has a war with Ukraine, like I'm going to find that out. I don't have to find it out the day it happens, but I will find it out. So I do a lot of, um, just because it interests me, a lot of uh, research into macro and uh, energy. And I Mm. mostly do that through podcasts. But I do subscribe to a couple of um, services. I subscribe to Doomberg, who does amazing analysis on energy and kind of macro um i subscribe to a podcast called grant williams which he's like amazing i did subscribe to his newsletter it's very expensive but uh, he does a really uh good um overview of the whole um macro kind of finance landscape so if something happens in finance it will come through to that i also regularly listen to a podcast called macro voices um where you get a lot more of the energy focus and um, i've recently discovered this guy called tom luongo um, I've subscribed to his service just to check it out, but it's kind of more focused on, focused on the geopolitical, um, what's going on behind the scenes. Like, the, you know, what, what I used to think was conspiracy, but I'm actually starting to think is actually real. Um, so, yeah. And then in terms of Bitcoin, um, I don't listen to every episode, but I keep my eye on Stefan Levera, um, right. the Matt O'Dell's podcast and Marty Benz yeah. podcast. In fact, I, I've got Marty Benz newsletter as well. Mm. Um, yeah, so I'm kind of like... I've got a few different things going on. Um, actually, there's another guy, uh, uh, body called um, or company called Goring and Roses. It's pretty hard to say. They do amazing commodities analysis. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah. So I, I kind of came to the view that you're better off paying for a bit of stuff because you kind of like paying that person to read the news for you and then compile it, summarizing, and provide yeah. their analysis, and then bring you this like really. I mean, it's what we used to do, right? We used to pay for newspapers. Yes. And we used to have journalists that did this for us. But now, that you know, there's no journalists happening, really. It's all just, you know, clickbait. Um, yes. So, yeah, my view is you should really find um, good content and pay for it. Um, and then, yeah, support them. And yeah, try, I try and curate it that way. Uh, I'm more into, I'd, I'd rather read something in depth for 20 minutes uh, rather than go through. Because I find Twitter is just too distracting. Like, I'll, I go in to check one thing and then, oh, now I'm doing this other thing. And I just, yes. it's not good for your brain. Mm. I read a book called The Shallows and he said that the um, the way the internet is that you're kind of constantly flicking from one thing to another, it actually rewires your brain uh, and makes it very hard to focus uh, on long-term, like reading a book, for example. So I'm, I'm really conscious of not doing too much uh, activity that is like that, where you're just flicking from one thing to another, like task switching. Yeah, so through those uh, services, I get a pretty good picture of what's happening. Like, I don't find out, you know, you know, like I didn't find out at, in the hour that the 
pipeline was blown up. But I, I don't need to. Like, it makes no difference to me. I probably found, found out the next day. But since then, I've read some really deep analysis of it. And I feel like I have a much better understanding of what happened compared to the people who are just on Twitter seeing the mm. kind of like one headline. The other thing is I'll often get sent a, twi- a Twitter headline, like some of my friend will send it to me, and I click on it, and the story is the opposite of the headline. So, yes. okay. you know, like it's – I'd rather go and read the story and go, oh, this is what's actually happening. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I've I've not spent much time on Twitter in my life. Right. And something that you mentioned was like, yeah, like once you were introduced to the Bitcoin community, then you see like so many people are focused on privacy. And like we've met in person and we were chatting yep. about this as well. Like, And you've taken steps towards that. Like what's your journey been like on the privacy side of things? Yeah. So I guess the big influence on me was um, Justin. So we worked together at Hardblock and we sat next to each other. And, uh, and in fact, just before I... Uh, Justin started. We also interviewed another guy in Adelaide for a different role, and um, he was hardcore into privacy. And I just didn't really understand anything about it at the time. Mm-hmm. Like this guy had a like a Nokia brick phone. Like that's he's like, I don't want a smartphone because you know they someone can take the camera. And I'm like, oh. um, so he was like, literally, his phone was a Nokia brick phone because it was much more secure. And um, I. Yeah, I thought these guys were crazy. You know, they talk about like having this phone for like normal work and another phone. Like they had two phones. Um, and then uh, actually it was through reading a newsletter about um, someone, like if you searched, so there was a, Robert Malone did some interviews with, um, he did an interview with uh, Joe Rogan on the Joe mm. Rogan podcast. Yes, yep. And uh, he invented the mRNA vaccine. Right. So yes. he's, he's like the authority on it. Yeah. And uh, if you search for that interview on Google, or on DuckDuckGo, you got totally different answers. And that was like a really kind of um, light bulb moment for me. I'm like, oh, they're censoring this stuff. Like it's, it wasn't about, for me, it wasn't really about the data. Cause like, I don't get ads. I have like heaps of ad, uh, ad blockers. Yep. So I'm, I'm not getting ads, but when I realized that Google was censoring the searches like into it with a bias, it was just all over for me. So since then I've basically been um, ticking away at, uh, my whole setup. So I started with Bitwarden, which isn't privacy, it's more security. But I found that's very powerful because once you have a Bitwarden, you can easily switch like your whole computer and just start again because you've got all your passwords there. Um, and then I set up um, ProtonMail and with Anonetti. So I, I really like Anonetti. I interviewed the guy from Anonetti when I was at the Bitcoin podcast, Australian Bitcoin podcast. He's a really cool guy. It's a great service because it means you can just um, sign up to like anything and not have to give away your main email address. Um, and then I started playing around with Linux. Um, so I, I kind of knew that um, when I would always move away from Windows because it just kept getting worse and worse. And uh, I had this uh, business computer that I bought secondhand and it was a good computer, but it just was crashing all the time. And I had it in the cupboard. So I got it out, put Linux on it. I tried like literally like 20 different distributions to find the one I liked. Um, but I put Linux on it and like, it's working beautifully now. Like I basically saved a computer that I had was sitting there doing nothing. So like now all of our computers run, uh, Linux. I like Linux Manjaro. It's my favorite. Um, but there's plenty of different ones. Um, and now I've got, um, we have a a, a business we run from home and it's got a phone and the, it's a medical business. So the information is very confidential. And I was setting it up and I'm like, Oh, wait a sec. This is an Android phone. Uh, <clears throat> this is not private. So I bought a 
a Pixel with a cracked screen because it was a lot cheaper. And I didn't need to do much with that phone. It was, it was like 150 bucks. And now that phone's got Calyx on it, which actually wasn't too hard to set up. Like it was, you know, it was a bit of playing around. Uh, and I've also got a modem, like a, a router or like a Wi-Fi router with um, Fresh Tomato, which is a open source firmware for routers. Okay. Because one of the biggest um, sources or lack of privacy is going to be your the router in your house. So if you're just like sending your information through your home, your home router, the ISP is seeing everything and then the government can capture if they want. Like we don't, who knows what's happening, but we should assume that <clears throat> the government could choose to capture that information. Sure, yep. So I got <clears throat> fresh tomato connected to my um, like firmware on this on my router, so all my devices in the house go through that router, which still goes through the whole NBN system. But I've also got VPNs on every device, basically. So now there's encrypted traffic going through there. So it was kind of quite intense journey, I suppose, because um, you know, like I, I would try and convert one of the computers. Like it's now in hindsight, it doesn't sound too bad. But when I was doing it, like I thought I'd broken one of the computers because I couldn't get it to couldn't get it to start then I, I realized what I was doing there's a lot of um debugging I suppose you'd call it uh, in some of these processes but then you also have these skills and now I can just it's not a big deal for me to run um to run all these different systems and <clears throat> it's interesting when I go back to other um software so we had to get some iPads for my wife's work because um she needs an app which is only on an iPad like it's just there's no choice for her yeah and I have to say the iPad experience sucks because when you go in, you've got to put in your credit card just to download a free app. You've got to put in all this stuff and they want you to do that. They can use the Siri and they like, you haven't finished setup. You need to put this other stuff in. Whereas you use Linux or, um, you know, Calyx, it's like, all right, it's just started and it's working. You don't have to sign in. You have to do anything. Like it's actually a much better user experience not having to give up your data all the time. You just can go and do yeah. stuff without being bugged all the time. So, yeah, whenever I go back, and, and see um, <clears throat> non-FOS software, I'm like, oh, this experience sucks. Like, <laughs> yeah, so that that has been my journey. I think um, I, my phone, I still need to upgrade my personal phone to Calyx. That's next on my to-do list. But yep. once I do that, I feel like I'm, you know, most of what I use is FOS. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And how's the transition like in all of this? Like, you know, it, because you're so you comfortable using like your existing setup, right? Like even... So everything that we use, like if you're not down this path, everything that you're using is not FOSS. So that goes from yes. your yep. regular do document software, like like Word, Word or any Microsoft uh, OS software, and then your then you have Gmail and your calendars and everything yep. else, right? Like, yeah. How is that transition? Was it too hard? Like, was it easy? And it's like any, it's a big task. And if you look at it as, oh wow, I have to change my whole life, you probably never start. But you just have to start somewhere. And like, I didn't do this in a, in a day. I did it probably over the course of this year. So if this week you just do one thing, like you set up a, a free ProtonMail account and you sign up to your next thing, because you, you'll find that every time you go shopping on the line, you have to put your email address in. So maybe you set up a non-addy and just, you know, the, you, just once you put in a, a non-addy alias instead of your Gmail account. Um, just take that small step. And then once you've taken a small step, it's easier to take the second step. So, yeah, it is kind of hard and clunky. Um, I think it's also good to do the things that provide a reward back to you. So Bitwarden saves you time in the long run. Um, it's a bit of stuffing around to set up. But when I use it now, so every time I use a password for Bitwarden, they're like, you know, 20, sometimes 60 character passwords, incredibly secure. But when I log in, I just have to press Control-Shift-L and it logs me in. 
So it's like convenient and more secure at the same time. Mm. So in that case, there is actually a payback in time. Um, if for me, like my Gmail was filling up, so I had to kind of decide, do I want to pay for this or pay for something else? Um, the other thing I did to say is I try to pay for the FOSS software where, where I can. I think we got into this mess because we didn't want to pay for stuff. And so, you know, the big companies had to decide, well, how do we actually pay for our servers and our employees? And they did it by selling our data. But I wonder if we'd paid for Google, uh, Google searches and Gmail at the start, whether they would have had to go down that path. They might have yeah. just made better products. Mm. So I, I do recommend trying to pay for stuff, um, you know, within reason. Um, it, it, a lot of it's not very expensive, but it's more like psychological. Like um, you could go to Tutor Nota, and I think it's like one euro twenty a month or something. Like it's really cheap. Yes. Um, so there's this kind of no reason other than being tight why you wouldn't pay for that. And if you pay for it, then they're sustainable. So yeah, I, I guess don't don't look at this big thing and go, wow, it's just just too hard for me. Just do one little thing. Um, just you know, or maybe just listen to one. Uh, there's an opt out podcast um, which is really good. And um, I find when you've listened to a podcast about something, it's kind of already in your mind. It's a lot easier to just go and start setting it up. Whereas if you're going from scratch, you have to sort of learn everything from scratch. So yeah, maybe maybe just start with listening to a podcast episode about from opt out uh, about some privacy tech um, or find someone in the community to, to, to work with. It does help a lot having someone you can just ask questions because I've had to do that. Um, okay. But yeah, just, just one little thing, anything in the right direction is good. Yep. I just thinking of my own setup, like, uh, yeah, like currently I just have one laptop and with like all my data and all my softwares on yeah, there, yeah. right? Like, and everything that, uh, would I need a backup laptop so that I have things going? And then what do you think? Yeah. Uh, I would recommend, well, I think cloud storage is probably the solution because then you can switch. So we've got three computers, but they all connect to a cloud. So it's like I can get any of our computers to do my work. Okay. Um, I happen to be using a closed source um, cloud service called pCloud, which I've I've got lifetime access to. So, But I bought that before I understood the FOSS part of it. But it's in Switzerland. Like it's a better one than Dropbox. But you can, for example, use Dropbox and or anyone and encrypt your software on your, encrypt your files on your laptop. But there's, there's heaps of open source um, open source uh, cloud software being built. So like if you have a ProtonMail, you can use the Proton Drive to store, to store a backup. Um, yeah, I, I think having a FOSS uh, cloud storage solution is pretty much critical these days mm. um, because then you can kind of afford to play around. And uh, yeah, like if your laptop dies like, and all your stuff's on it, that's really bad, right? So, you know, at least, at least back it all up to an external drive um, but I think, yeah, searching for a FOSS cloud storage solution that's encrypted is right. probably a really good first step because it, it's much easier to switch operating systems once you've done that. Hmm. Something that you mentioned was anonymous email IDs. And I think, yeah, I mean, we had like a an in-person conversation about this as well. But how does it work like for someone that's listening? Yeah, okay. So the the one I use is called Anonetty, A-N-O-N-A-D-D-Y. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically in there you create an alias so you create a username that might be like Merrick uh, or you'd be supposed to be more anonymous like just some characters or whatever and then you can just um, create an alias uh, either on the fly like by just putting some text before the at so you might like if you want to sign into I don't know the age 
Um, mm. You put like the age at merrick.anonaddy.com or you can just go into Anonaddy. There's an extension as well on your browser. Create a new alias and just label it as what it is, like the age. And then that will send the email to your real email address. And then when you reply to it, it'll look as though you've replied from the alias. So it's really handy because you can, for example, just turn off the alias. Like, because often you'll, you want to go buy some item from a shop, online shop, then they add you to their newsletter. Well, yes. you didn't ask to be added to the newsletter. You can just turn off the alias. So you bought that thing, you turn off the alias, and you just move on. Because um, I've had ones where I just can't unsubscribe. Um, the other really good advantage of it is that, let's say a lot of people probably use like their Gmail addresses, their username, and like a couple of passwords. Um, and then let's say your data gets breached, like the Optus breach. Now, yeah. someone's got your email address and a password that you've used in one website. Mm. They can take that combination and try it in like all the different banks, um, your email addresses, and try and get into your systems. Because um, if you've just repeated the same password all, all over the place, it's very easy for them to do that. Whereas if you use an alias, you have a unique email and a unique password for every website. That's significantly more secure than having, uh, yeah, obviously the same email and the same password. So <clears throat> there's some huge advantages there. Um, it is better if you pay for it. You get better bandwidth and stuff, but it's it's super handy to be able to, um, yeah, have an address that, like if you meet someone you're not sure about them, you don't want to give out your, your main email address. Or if you sign up to some website, you're not sure about their security, you don't want your real email address in that website. Um, the other thing is, if you put your email address in, they know who you are. They can link it to all the places where that email address has been signed in. Whereas if you use a new alias, they have no idea. And you can create like totally custom aliases that could never be tracked back to you. Um, the whole thing is open source. You can self-host it. Like if you don't trust the server where it's being hosted, you can just self-host it, uh, which <clears throat> is a, a lot more work, but some people like to do that as well. Right. Yep. Yep. That sounds, yeah. And yeah, I think I need to, for myself, I need to go down that path and like experiment with it and see how I feel about it as well. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, that one is, you, you can set up a free account Okay. and just do one alias and just try it. If you don't like yes. it, you can just leave the account, but it's, uh, yeah, it's a very low risk thing. Like, whereas you know, switching to Linux is a bit of a risk because you, yes. you know, you might wipe the Windows part of your computer or something, and there's a, a big learning curve. Whereas a non-addy, it's, it's you know, there's no cost to get started. You can just do a, mm. a test alias and just check it out. Yep. Just to switch gears here, and like we spoke about this in person, is about I think like what made you change like you did your own research i know like we spoke about this in person and like yeah <clears throat> i'm not sure whether you are on a full a complete carnivore diet but like more on a meat-based diet yeah and like was this i i know that's big with the bitcoin community was this yeah. prior to uh, coming into bitcoin because you you did say you did your own research into this and yeah or was this like during the same time well for me so when my wife moved in before we were married about 2010 she was on this super low-fat, low-salt diet, which was, you know, at the time we thought super healthy. So I'm like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll join you on this diet because we cook our meals together. And then I came across this article in the, like literally in the newspaper, this is how long ago it was, like we got the newspaper delivered, uh, about Sarah Wilson who was trialing not having sugar. And I thought like that was so extreme, like such a weird concept at the time. But she kept talking about it. I was like, this is quite interesting. And then she referenced a book um, by David Gillespie about fructose. And uh, I read the book and I was just blown away by 
basically the lies that we've been told about. Um, like the 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 study that was used to inform this kind of idea that um, cholesterol is bad and heart disease is caused by caused by saturated fat. The data in that study was rigged um, to get an outcome. I'm like, well, okay, well, if the if the basis for our understanding of heart disease is not from this study and that st- data was rigged, then the basis of our understanding of health is completely wrong. So I went down a path of, I've read heaps of books on, on diet. Um, so I started just cutting out fructose, thinking that was bad. Yeah. Then, and that was good, but it didn't make a huge difference. And then I discovered the- Jeremy, sorry, I'll, yeah, just interject there. For the people that are listening and they would, they wouldn't know what's fructose like oh, yeah. okay sure yeah yeah so um if you eat sugar like table sugar it's half of it is glucose which is a sugar molecule and half of it's fructose which is a like basically the sugar that's in fruit and fructose is is the sweet part it's much sweeter than the glucose um mm. if you eat some fruit like an apple um the the thing that's sweet is fructose and the body basically treats it like a toxin so when it goes into the liver the liver has to uh, it kind of treats it like a toxin. It has to kind of try and get rid of it. Um, and then I, with that understanding, I started reading books about um, the paleo diet. I can't remember how I discovered that, but I guess when you're in this, this kind of niche, you sort of find all the different books. Yeah. And then the paleo diet, he basically says, well, all grains are bad. So basically all starch, which is glucose. So if you ever eat like rice, uh, pasta, they're basically just um, complicated chains of glucose bonded together and then when the body um when the body breaks down those chains what you have is sugar in your stomach mm. and i was eating huge quantities of that you know like every meal like i was eating wheat pigs um bread you know like what most people eat right yeah yes and it was quite confronting to go oh is all this stuff bad as well and eventually i did cut out i went i used a, a technique from tim ferris which is um using cheat days so i said okay monday to friday i'm gonna i'm gonna be good i'm gonna eat paleo and on the weekend we'll eat whatever we want no rules and it's, it's a really good way of um changing yeah, but, your diet because mm. <clears throat> you don't have to say oh i can never eat a croissant again it's like i can't eat a croissant until saturday uh and it became friday night but you know like especially if you're working a 40-hour week having that those rules free on the weekend is really handy and that made a huge difference to me when I went into the paleo diet and I cut out all the all the starches. Um, my uh, my waistline went down, um, my sleeping better, and um, you know I, I was convinced there was what we've been told is wrong. And then after uh, our kids were born, my wife had some issues with kidney stones during the pregnancy, and after our first child, she had to uh, have surgery. It was, it was terrible. And after the second child, she had another kidney stone and. Um, I said to the obstetrician, oh, can we just use diet to, to get rid of the kidney stone? Because I did some chemistry at school and stuff. And I know that if you dilute like a salt, it will just eventually, you know, go away, right? Right. And I'm like, well, if we, can, if we put the right conditions in, surely the stone can go away. She's like, oh, no, no, you can't do that. Mm. Like, oh, okay. Um, and then I started reading. And at the time, there was like a lot of vegan, like I'll call it propaganda, like the Game Changer movie. Yep. And I had this realisation like, Oh, like protein is just amino acid. Why is a plant protein easier to digest than a meat protein? Like I couldn't, like, what is the reason for that? And I'm one of these people, I'm not my two-year-old son. I just keep asking why until I find the answer. So I found this website called Diagnosis Diet. And she actually explains how different proteins are digested. And uh, yeah, it turns out basically that um, uh, vegetable proteins are not really easier. They're not better for you or anything. Like meat proteins are actually much easier to digest because they don't have... um, 
toxins with them, like lectins, which are a toxin that comes with beans and so on. And they don't have carbohydrates with them, which if you have um, issues with diabetes is, is a really big advantage. Um, but the main thing that got me into the diet was that um, learning about oxalates, which is a, um, it's like a, it's what causes kidney stones. So oxalate is like a, a chemical that plants use to defend themselves because a plant right. can't move, right? It's not like a yes. lion that can just run away. Um, so it uses chemicals to basically tell you not to eat it. Uh, and it's particularly bad in leafy greens, bits of the plant that are not the fruit. So like kale, which is like, if you eat kale, you're eating the leaf of the plant, right. but you're killing the plant. Um, so I realized that um, these oxalates are what was causing the kidney stones. And I had this moment with my wife, I'm like, oh, why are we eating this stuff? If this is keeping <laughs> like, this is the oxalate that's causing kidney stones. So we completely cut out all of those leafy vegetables, which we were literally growing in our garden. That's how like, you know, it's like quite a life-changing thing for us. And we've just slowly been going more and more carnivore. And now I don't eat vegetables at all. I find them really bitter. Um, I usually eat one meal a day, like one huge meal of meat, eggs, some cheese, uh, ghee. Um, and it's sort of weird because like I got into carnivore very independently of Bitcoin. Right. But the thing that you find that comes in common is that openness to new information without it like bringing your own bias. So mm. like a lot of people will think, oh, that can't be true because, you know, all my life it wasn't true. Rather than saying, "Oh, okay, so what is this data that's being presented? How do I, uh, how do I interpret this data without judging it?" And it, that skills that allows you to realize that the Australian dollar uh, is being inflated away hmm. and Bitcoin is much better is the same skill set you need to go into looking into diet and going, "Oh, this is the basis of, of the truth that we thought was true." So yeah, so that's how I got into carnival, and I'll tell you what, I would never ever go back. Um, like I, you know, socially I eat, you know cake okay. and stuff yeah. and i always feel bad afterwards okay like i feel much <laughs> much better eating just yeah a big meal of meat once a day and then it's actually very convenient because i don't have to eat <laughs> for right. a while after that yeah yeah and and when and like just to put a year around this like when was this that you started eating one meal a day and and how's it been so far so i guess i discovered carnivore i guess late 2020 right. um so i started reading books about it so that's when i discovered um, this website diagnosis diet by georgie each it's got some really good free content on there then i read sean baker's book um mm. he's a orthopedic surgeon he was using carnivore diet to help his patients lose weight yep and then he discovered that when they'd lost the weight they actually didn't need the surgery anymore um and uh you know like it's a really brave thing to do because he basically put himself out of a job and there's another one by Paul Saladino. Um, I forget the yes. title of the book, but yeah, those are the kind of the two main books in the industry. And there's, there's others now. Yeah. So I read those two books and I guess it was just, even though we were on the paleo diet, it was kind of confronting to go to a fully meat-based diet. Like it's just, it it creates some challenges. Like for example- so, Sorry, um, Jeremy, I'll just yeah. interject that. So what's the difference for between the paleo diet and the carnivore diet? Okay, so the paleo diet- is trying to, in theory, replicate the diet that we ate um, like a million years ago because genetically we're pretty similar to, um, well, we are homo sapiens that have been around 300,000 years. Mm-hmm. We're actually pretty similar to the humans before that, which have been around 3 million years. So we're trying to eat a, a diet that is closer to that. Now, 300,000 years ago, we didn't have sugar, like getting sugar from sugar cane, like it didn't, an icing sugar, we didn't have that, right? So it's basically trying to eat foods that, you can only grow in nature. Um, but realistically, um, 
the carnivore diet is kind of so paleo diet is you know no grains so no agriculture this is before because agriculture is ten thousand years old so pre-agriculture so no grains it's basically animals and uh and vegetables i think so you can hunt and gather okay the carnivore diet is no plants really (laughs) that's basically all no plants yes um plants are kind of like a survival food so if you can eat beef Beef has all the nutrients you'll ever need. You'll be just healthy for the rest of your life. If you can eat, if beef is available, you would always eat beef. You would, but you would only eat vegetables if there was no beef. That's basically they're, they're a survival food to get you through until you get your next hunt. So yeah, so that's the difference. The the carnivore diet is like a subset of the paleo diet. It's the same kind of concept, but um, uh, I guess more of a focus. But yeah, even moving from paleo to carnivore is, is quite a mental change because things like if you're eating one meal a day. Mm. Uh, and you want to have a family meal together, <laughs> you know, like some of the planning around. And we have two young kids, and they, the young kids, like to eat carbs, like as yes. much as you try and <laughs> convince. You can't convince them with logic. Um, so, yeah, like some of the, there's been some challenges around, you know, how we actually eat together as a family and still create that sort of social bond at meal times. But uh, yeah, that, that's that's kind of the summary of the carnivore diet. Sure. And what's your experience been like eating one meal a day, and like how long you've been doing that for? So I don't do it all the time. <clears throat> I okay. find it much easier to do when I'm out of the house. Right. Because like your body kind of, when it, when you walk through the kitchen, your body tells you, oh, you're hungry now, like, because you've seen food. Um, but yeah, I think that it's not so much like something you have to uh, actively do. It sort of happens when you start burning more fat. So one thing happens on a carnivore diet or any keto diet, rather than burning sugar, um, which you then need to get more sugar to keep burning it like from your food, you actually just start burning fat and we have enough fat in our bodies to last like 60 days. Yes. Um, so you can definitely go a few hours without eating if you have enough fat to last 60 days. Mm. Um, and so unless you have like some food in front of you, you just don't actually get hungry. It's not like something that I actively go, Oh, I'd, um, like right now I haven't eaten today. It's 10 o'clock here in Adelaide. I'm not at all hungry because I had a massive meal yesterday. Uh, so yeah, it's just something that kind of happens when you start moving towards this diet and I think your body starts to adapt to it, you start burning fat instead of sugar mm. and uh, you just get a much more consistent level of focus. Like you're not uh, – it's interesting when I go in an office and I see people, like I can tell the time it's always 3 o'clock, people are going to the vending machine to get some chocolate <laughs> because they've had a big lunch with lots of carbs and then they're crashing. Yes. And I'm like, well, my brain's fine. I don't need to do that. So, yeah, it's just something that happens over time. The key, though, is you have to eat a lot of fat, which is hard to get your hand around, right. and large quantities. So, you know, like I could eat potentially close to a kilo of meat in a day. Um, but if you have a small meal, that's actually quite bad because your body's like doing all this effort to digest but not getting much energy from it, and then you like get, have to eat again. So the key is to plan well, eat a meal with a lot of fat, a lot of meat, and then just, you know, be done for the day. Sure. And... Now, speaking of fat, like, so what sort of fat are you getting, like, from the, so it's just, like, animal fat? Or... Yeah, yeah, okay. just animal fat. So right. uh, another thing I did talk about is the, so that sugar is really bad, but also seed oils are really, really bad. Yeah, um, It's interesting, when you hear the word saturated fat, you think, um, oh, it's saturating my body with fat. But actually, it's just a chemical term to describe the type of bond in it. Um, saturated fat is really stable. You can store it forever, uh, basically, like in, you know, we have ghee, which is saturated fats. So it's uh, boiled butter, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and it, you don't have to store it in the fridge because it's very stable. Yep. It doesn't oxidize. Whereas um, oil that comes from like canola, sunflower, it's uh, it's called polyunsaturated. It has lots of unsaturated bonds, which when they interact with oxygen, uh, they go rancid. So it's really unstable. If you eat that fat, it becomes the fat in your body. Like you have this rancid fat in your body as the cells of your body. Because what you eat becomes the cells of your body, right? Right. So, um, yeah, we we all of the fat we eat is um, either from the meat itself, because I will get fatty cuts of meat or like bones. Um, and this is, if you use all the sauce, like you, you get the fat from it. Mm-hmm. Um, or I use geese. So I go to Indian groceries and buy like 10 litre buckets of ghee. It's really right. cost effective. Yes. Um, and I use that because a lot of people use tallow, which is like the meat fat. Yes. But I find when you fry it high heat, it's like it's it's not very good for frying. So I use ghee for, for cooking. I'll just put okay. like a fair bit of ghee in. Um, but yep. we do have tallow, which we add to stuff. But I think ghee is better. But yeah, pretty much always saturated fat is the mm-hmm. only food you can eat that in, in unlimited quantities that won't um, have a toxic effect on you. It's the safest food to eat. And yet we've been told yeah. the opposite of that. Exactly. Yeah. I was just going to say, we've been told the opposite of yeah. that, right? Like for the, for years. Cause I remember like back in India, there's to be like TV advertisements of sunflower oil and how it's like, they, they show up like a man getting a sort of a heart attack and then his wife is switched to oil to sunflower oil. And now he feels much better. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's the message we've been getting, but actually that's caused by sugar. Yes. hundred percent. Yeah. In, in saying that like, uh, you were speaking of tallow and it like, it starts, popping out right yeah i came across something probably a while ago is like tallow is the best for uh f- like deep frying it's yeah. a deaf oil for deep frying stuff yeah, it would and, be, yeah. and apparently mcdonald's was using tallow to fry uh, like for their fries till the late 80s well no i can tell i used to work at burger king it's my okay. first job in 2000 i think it was and they were using tallow then it oh, was wow. actually the worst job to like clean out because we had to clean out the grill. Yeah. They would send the tallow off somewhere. They would filter it and come back in these blocks. And that would be what they used to cook the chips in. Mm. So yeah, in 2000, they were cooking using tallow then, but they've changed. Right. Um, yeah. Supposedly for health reasons, but I think it's more for cost reasons. 100%. Yeah. yeah. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. It's for cost reasons. Yes. Yeah. And uh, so, so in, two, in 2000, they were using tallow at Burger King. And like from, so how did, how did the, like these industries get the sources of tallow then, like back then? Uh, well, I think if you butcher the whole cow, there uh-huh. are like most people want to buy like the mince and the steak and so on. And there's, mm. there's just fat everywhere throughout it. So, I mean, everywhere, um, like, if you know, if I think about the way my grandmother used to cook, they would do a roast and they would look, have it on a rack and underneath they would let the, it was called dripping because it dripped off the roast. They would keep that. Into, in a container and that they would use that as their set of butter. Right. So um, I think, you know, my mom thought that that was a, a poor thing to do because it was like this free source of fat. But I think basically it's like when you eat meat, you're getting the protein and the fat all together in a package. Mm. And it's kind of in the amounts that you need because it's the same type of cell as your body has. Um, and the fat is very nutrient uh, energy rich. So you don't need, in terms of grams, you don't need to eat as much fat as uh, protein because it's got so many calories. So yeah, typically though, if you're, if you're eating the whole animal, you're getting enough fat. The problem is if you only eat like lean mints, that's not like a natural thing to do because you can't get a cow that's made entirely of lean mints, right? Like you, yeah. you have to eat the whole animal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I don't know if you know, but I order directly from a farm. So we get like a quarter of a cow delivered. I've got a deep freezer. 
So we get the whole animal, like the bones, the fat, the the eye filler, the, everything. So if you eat the whole animal, you're going to get everything in balance that you need. Sure. Right, right. What about organ meat? Like, do you guys have organ meat? Yeah, yeah. so we get, um, previously we got the organs meats and I made sausages out of them. This right. time we got them um, whole. Mm-hmm. They're in the freezer, so I haven't actually, <laughs> I haven't cooked them yet. Uh, okay. Some of the organs are pretty pretty strong tasting. Um, yes. So my plan is to like, I've got a Weber, charcoal Weber, kind of okay. use some some wood to smoke them a bit, maybe cover the flavor. But yeah, I haven't really got my uh, my cooking techniques find you know honed down for the organs, but we have them. They're in the okay. freezer. I've just yeah. got to learn how to cook because it's you kind of lose these cooking skills over time because yes. you know if you don't cook with these ingredients. So I, yeah. I need to learn how to to cook with them, but. Uh, apparently, you don't need to eat organ meat. Don't uh, Sean need Baker, to yeah, Sean Baker just eats steak. Mm. He must be very rich because he can afford to eat a lot of steak. But um, <laughs> if you just eat steak, that's actually enough. But okay. I believe, you know, traditional societies did eat organ meats. So to me, that makes sense because um, yep. also, like, why waste them? But, yeah, I haven't really honed my technique. But I can tell you that, like, you can get lamb hearts really cheaply at Coles. Right. Um, and they're very tasty. So, and they're not they're not strong. Whereas, like yes. liver, kidney, they they have kind of a strong awful taste. So, yeah, yeah, I'm still refining that technique. Sure, I know one thing is like the uh, people say is like you can soak liver in milk and it takes out the metallic taste from it. Does it? Okay. Yeah, uh, yeah. You soak it in milk and then it takes out the metallic taste and then you can cook it. And another interesting thing that someone told me was. Because like, say, say you don't like having liver and like, if you want to have it like as a daily source, because yep. apparently liver is like one of the most healthiest organs. Yes. Yeah. So, and like, even in the animal kingdom, I think like if there's a hunt, uh, like a wolf pack, the leader of the wolf would eat, uh, get the first pick and then he eats the liver or yes. yeah, he or she, I'm not sure. Yeah. yeah. And then there was like this pack of uh, whales just of New Zealand that were hunting great whites just for their liver. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, liver is the most nutrient-dense food there is. Yes, yeah. yeah. So so what he told me was you know, what to do with liver is say is the, for someone that didn't like the taste is blend it up and then yep. you get like this gelatin capsules and like get a syringe, fill up the capsules and you are c- making your own liver pills and then store it in the freezer and you can pop one pill like every day or whatever like suits you. Yeah. Yeah, I've got to try. I do actually have freeze-dried liver. But again, there's still a little bit of a taste there. Like I've yep. put it in my kids, like I bake something, I put a little bit in, it's just to hide <laughs> it in there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like it, it's it's very nutritious, but you're just trying to, I'm, I'm going to try that milk thing because the metallic mm. part, that's probably the toxins that the liver is filtering. Yes. So that, that, that could be interesting. Yep, yep. Yeah, and another thing about organ meats was it used to be a delicacy like in the past, right? And like today it's like one of the cheapest yes. cuts or like a throwaway throw thing. And what used to be, uh, so lobsters and prawns used to be like slave food. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then, yeah, now it's switched. And those are like the one of the most expensive things. And like, yeah, organ meat is like what's thrown away. Yeah. Well, interestingly, in China, the offal is more expensive than the, the muscle meat. Yeah. But here Makes it's sense. the opposite. Yeah. Yes. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Jeremy, one more thing that we spoke about in person was like workouts, right? Like, so you, yeah, yeah you want to, yeah. So you, it's like, what's the, with your one day, uh, like one meal a day and like working out, like, does that affect you at all? Or it's like, it's fine doing it. How do you find uh, it? Yeah. So I, I guess I wouldn't recommend eating like a huge meal and then working out straight away. Of course. Yeah. But um, 
I don't usually think about it. When I when I was having a carb-based diet, if I didn't eat before, like I used to play volleyball quite seriously. Mm. And if I didn't eat before training, I would have like sugar crashes. Um, but on this diet, I don't, I don't exercise as much these days, but um, mainly what I, I go bouldering, uh, try and get there once a week, which is like indoor rock climbing, but no ropes. Yep. Yep. So it's, it's not very high. And I'm setting up a home gym because uh, my understanding of exercises, it's really you want to build muscle uh, and bone, strong bones. That's what the outcome you want. Um, yep. So I've set up a home gym. And what I tend to do is I just do one exercise a day, roughly, like, like you know, a few times a week. Mm. I'll just go in there for 10 minutes, do my exercise, and it's, it's done. Okay. So typically I don't find an issue um, – doing that or i have to say if you have to eat carbs like let's say you, you go to someone's birthday to be socially appropriate you eat some cake or something i find if i i get very sleepy afterwards mm. but if i do a workout i get re-energized because i think the blood the, the sugar gets soaked up by those muscles yes um yeah so I, I find it's a lot easier to plan because again if you're working on fat you have lots of fat there's no shortage of it the only issue is if you're digesting a really big meal it maybe isn't very like a tough meat that's not cooked enough and it needs a lot of digestive work, then all the blood is diverted to your digestive system and you don't have it available to to work out. So, <clears throat> but generally speaking, I, I don't really think about it much anymore. Like I just, it's more because I've got little kids. I'm like, oh, I've got an hour here. I'm going to do it now. <laughs> that's, yes. that's the thinking I give it, yeah. Okay, yeah. And do you have like sugar cravings anymore? Uh, no, um, not really. Like mm. I do, because the thing is we do have... Like we do make stuff for the kids. Right. Like if you walk past the kitchen and you smell this really nice, you know, uh, and it's like when I say we make stuff, like we make with low carb flour and tapioca flour, but, you know, I still walk past the kitchen. I'm like, I'll eat something that I shouldn't. Um, but I don't really crave sugar. Like I, I kind of got to a point, hmm. like through this diet, I actually discovered that I was gluten-free uh, or gluten intolerant. And I kind of cured like a lot of my, um, some, you know, I used to have quite bad hay fever and aspirin. It's been so much better without having gluten in my diet and once i kind of reframed that food in my mind i just didn't want to eat it anymore like i don't have that craving i think once you learn to associate um a food with a bad feeling afterwards you stop to cra- you stop craving it um that's kind of how i've found um yeah. but i i'm not like i'm not a hundred percent kind of what i don't, I don't give you the wrong impression like i'm probably 80 or 90 <clears throat> percent yes um but if i lived on my own i probably would be like 99 percent it's just more like okay. trying to make it work in a family. Um, yep. It is, yeah, not always as easy. For sure. Yes, yes. So do you still have like dark, uh, dark chocolate here and there? Uh, uh, no? I used to have it a lot. Uh, yeah. Like when I say a lot, like a, a square of 95% or even 99% dark chocolate. But, um, yeah. but now I don't even crave that. Like occasionally I'll mm. see it on money, but I don't, I don't have it very often. My, my main vice is I really like coffee, like espresso, like just black coffee, like filter coffee or espresso. Mm-hmm. I have coffee once or twice a day. Like I really like it. It's probably not good for me, but I like it a lot. And I like the cafe experience. That's for me my my main vice. Right. Like I stopped having alcohol over the last couple of years. Just sort of happened naturally. Like I don't really, I don't crave it at all. Um, and when you've got young kids, you can't really, you know, um, yep. you can't really just sit and enjoy a nice whiskey or something. Like you're getting interrupted. So I've pretty much cut out alcohol most um sugar but yeah for me coffee is my my advice that i still i don't think i could ever let that go for sure yeah yes so recently like i just finished a 72 hour fast wow and yeah 
and a day prior like i yeah i didn't yeah i thought like oh the only thing that i would come up was coffee so like a day prior to that prior to starting the fast like i didn't have any coffee and like i was having like these bad headaches yeah and then the first day into the fast i was like sort of having the headaches and now coming off the fast like i don't crave coffee anymore and like yeah, yeah it's yeah 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 it is a good thing to uh periodically just reset yourself because otherwise yeah. you go oh, i'll have one coffee and then you're having two coffees a day and then it's three coffees a day so you want to like yes. reset yourself so that one coffee has the impact but i mean i don't really have it for the caffeine i just like the taste of it but yeah, yeah. that's uh that's pretty hardcore sugar can also do that have get have the headache issue like if you're yes craving carbs or whatever mm-hmm. <clears throat> but yeah that's pretty hardcore i've never done that long okay yeah yeah i mean there's a interesting uh there's like a bitcoin fasting group like there's quite a few oh, really? people yeah there's quite a few people based here in australia that are part of the group and like yeah and it was good like having like a group and like there's few people doing with you so then we yeah. are exchanging ideas or exchanging how we are feeling about it and like we are all doing it together so that was good yeah. yeah yeah i did read michael mosley's book about fasting so i yeah i've always kind of tried to um build it into my my diet i suppose but now with with a high fat diet it just sort of happens naturally yeah yeah 100% jeremy i'm not going to take any more of your time but i i want to ask you one last question like sure. uh, if you could go back and like tell say something to your like give any sort of information to your 20 year old self what would it be like uh, yeah it's an interesting question because i obviously i'd like to have mined bitcoin in 2010 that would have <laughs> been cool but then you think well i wouldn't have done a lot of the stuff that i did do And like some of it I, I didn't enjoy like going to work like I used to <clears throat> have to fly to Sydney all the time from Melbourne and, um those sorts of things but that also builds up your tolerance for work and uh and you learn things about how people work and how the world works and I feel like if I you know like if I had just fallen into like a thousand bitcoin and didn't know what to do with my life hmm. I'm not sure that would have been so positive So, you know, what would I tell myself? Like do I have I don't know, like I don't really have any regrets. Um Sure. I think let I, me I, yeah. let me rephrase that. Yeah. Uh, what what would you tell like uh someone that is 20 and okay. like what what sort of <laughs> advice you would give them like for sure. life? Yeah. I the number one thing is time is the most scarce resource. Like yeah. I like Bitcoin but I like time better. Mhm. Cuz once every minute once it's gone you cannot get it back. We have this one life. and you have to make the most of it and family is then the most important thing to spend your time on um when you the time you have with your children when they're young if you choose to have children is the most valuable resource that exists it's so short and i see a lot of people um not valuing it and they regret it they look back and they go i really wish i'd spent more time with my kids i guess i was lucky that i was able to learn that lesson before i had kids and i knew that that's what i wanted to spend my time on so i've been a stay at home dad part times for I don't know 6 years now. Um yeah, so time building your family relationships is is critical. Mm. And then you have to build your health, like understand diet, exercise, sleep, um and and focus on that. And then I guess beyond that you need to have some sort of creative purpose. Um I think a lot of people they go to work uh, for the money, but there's no reward there because the money is abstract to as humans we can't conceive of yes. like a salary like it's just not a real thing but you could conceive of work that you've done like when you do something and you go and show someone hey I did this you actually don't care if you got paid for that or not so having some sort of creative outlet where you're in control of it 
maybe it's like a podcast like you're running uh, maybe it's you learn to draw or like some sort of skill that you develop um, because yeah having that sense of reward in your life is so important so I think yeah, if I could have summarized valuing your time extremely highly so if you go to work make sure that's a good deal for you like make sure you're getting a good salary and you're learning and building a network don't just do it because it suits the company they want to hire you and preparing yourself for your family life if you're 20 you want to think about all right how do I get to a point because between when you're 20 and say 30 or 35 you don't have children it's much easier to earn money at that time so you want to like build up savings so that when you get into the next stage of your life when you're having young children you have some flexibility you're not forced to be earning money while you're also trying to raise these children which is literally the hardest thing that I've ever done is raise young children um so yeah like kind of the 20s is all about building up your sort of financial stability so you can then afford to have some flexibility when the children arrive and when they're yeah. off at school and it's a lot easier you can you know go, go back to work but yeah mm. value time value family that's those are the two most important things 100% thanks jeremy no yeah. worries something that yeah, like like while you were saying this something that popped up for me was uh i think it was sam harris uh, podcast a podcast or somewhere that yep. he was speaking to some individual is like the last time like you know we don't realize when it's going to be the last time that we are doing a certain task yes, yes yes and especially like with kids it's like they're growing so fast you don't realize like when is the last time you actually pick them up yeah 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 absolutely like yeah it just it's like such a cliche like it goes fast but it it really does go fast and if you don't form the memories and engage like it's gone you don't build that bond that time is gone you never ever get it back you can go get more bitcoin but you can can never ever get your time back it's gone so you gotta spend it well yep thanks jeremy and yeah hope to speak to you soon again absolutely great talking to you mary yep bye cheers thanks guys for tuning in and if you enjoyed the show all i ask is that you share it with one other person And I also recommend that you use podcasting 2.0 apps like Breeze or Fountain FM. I'll link them down below. This will help you earn Bitcoin while you listen and it will also help support the show. Once again, thanks for tuning in and I'll see you in the next one.